All right, thanks for joining us. We're going to be taking our Bibles and going to Genesis. The book of Genesis chapter 37 is where we're going to start this morning. We're going to look at the life of Joseph. You know, when I looked through history and I was thinking about it, history is replete with stories of individuals who have persevered through testings and trials and have come out triumphant through their tragedies. Uh, Henry Ford, he had to declare bankruptcy five different times before the Ford Motor Company actually took off. Walt Disney, I don't know if you know this, he was fired from his first job as an illustrator with the Kansas City Star because his cartoons were not creative enough or engaging to children. I was like, okay. Uh, Steven Spielberg tried to get into uh, the University of Southern California School of uh, Theater, Film, and Television, and he was told that they didn't believe he had the ability to be a great director, and so they weren't allowing him in uh, three different times until he finally got in. Steven Spielberg, he does... He does uh, I, I know. <laughs> Just for us don't, older people. Don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I think he did a lot when you were younger. Well, yeah, but, but, yeah. maybe maybe for the younger people. I don't know. Did any of you ever hear the story of Bethany Hamilton? Uh, Bethany Hamilton was the young lady who was a surfer in Hawaii. And at the age of uh, 13, she was attacked by a tiger shark yeah. and her left arm was completely severed and ripped off. And she eventually loved, loved surfing, got back into it and uh, taught herself to surf with the one arm. And she uses that story as a wonderful, triumphant testimony of, of God's grace. She says this, as I grew up with one arm and I relearned how to surf, God taught me that he can take the hard times I went through and turn them into something beautiful. He said, I think, she said, I think that he can do that for each and every one of you. He can take what you've been through and use it for good if you're willing to let him. And uh, I just thought that was a beautiful picture, a modern-day picture of what Joseph went through in his life, just the different tragedies or trials or testings that we'll look at. And as we look at the story of Joseph today, we're going to see, you know, trials can be numerous. In our lives, we, trials can be, they, they can come in many different forms. They can be personal, they can be social, they can be emotional, they can be physical, spiritual, they can come from different sources. They can come from external situations. They can come from internal choices and uh, difficulties we have. They can be foreign. They can be family. Uh, when you look through, they can come from men, women. They can be psychological. There's lots of different trials and testings that, that come into our lives. And they have many purposes. Now, in the story of Joseph, we're going we're gonna to see the purposes when we get to the end. But when we look through the Bible especially, Trials are there, they can be there to mature us, to root out sin, to provide comfort for others in the future. They can uh, be used to bring others to salvation. Even in some of the situations and trials we face right now in our culture, God's using them and can use them to bring others to salvation in Jesus Christ. So allowing those trials to be, to be used in the way that God has is very important in our life. And Joseph's account in the Bible, it's not just a diary of his daily events and activities. I think that's important to remember that these are divinely inspired highlights that God has uniquely placed in the scripture for us to look at the life of a man who really, he defies the objective of sinking to the lowest common denominator. Here's a guy who could have easily just chosen to just let things happen. I mean, you think about his family. I mean, if there is a quote-unquote dysfunctional family that you could read about, you, you get it with, the, with this guy. I mean, you have a father and a grandfather who, yes, they're, they've come to an agreement, but they're not on speaking terms anymore. They've went their own way. You have a father who has basically lied, cheated, and stolen his way to great fame and fortune. And uh, he's, yes, been blessed, but ultimately he has no relationships. His, he and his brother are, are cordial again, 
but there's no real relationships there. You have a brother, his brothers, Joseph's brothers have become, they're ruthless. They are often excessive in their violence. And they have all these different dynamics. You have uh, family ethics that really, when you look at them, their scruples seem pretty much all over the place. Whatever's going to make me happy, whatever's going to work, that's, that's how I'm going to do it. And Joseph could have easily just said, well, that's just the way the society I was brought up in. That's just my family. That's just the way we are. But yet we see the story of a man who chooses not to do that. And as we look through Joseph's life today, starting in chapter 37, we're going to see that he really defies that, regardless of how he was treated, in spite of unfair, erroneous accusations, even though he was rejected, he was abandoned, he was abused, he's been, he'll be maligned, he'll be forgotten, he refuses to become resentful or bear a grudge or succumb to bitterness. Joseph does all this, and how does the account in Genesis, as we look through it today, man, how does that bear that out as we see the, the different trials in the life of Joseph, the temptations? Genesis 37, we start to get the background of Joseph. We see the story begin to unfold. And as we enter into it, chapter 37, verse 1, we see that they're in the land of Canaan. And as they're there, Joseph is 17 years old, according to verse number 2. And as he's, as he's there, he comes back, he was out with his brothers, comes back and he gives a poor report of what his brothers are doing. We're not told what it is. We just know that Jacob was pleased with Joseph doing that. There is favoritism that is shown to Joseph. Verse 3, it says, now uh, Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than his, all his children because he was the son of his old age. He made him a coat of many different colors, a beautiful coat, a luxurious coat that is, that is found there. And what is the result of this favoritism that's unwisely shown by Jacob? Do you notice what his brothers do? Verse 4. And his brothers, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brethren, they hated him. There was despise toward toward him. And then what moves the story even further is Joseph now is going to have dreams. And in, in that culture... Dreams were divinely divine, seen as divine messages. They held the dreams much higher than we do now. We just think if I have a weird dream, it's probably because of pepperoni pizza or something I had, you know, last night. But they they understood, and there was something unique here. So Joseph is going to dream the dream, uh, and he he's going to share it with his brothers. Verse five it says Joseph dreamed a dream, told it to his brothers, and what happened? They hated him yet the more. Mm-hmm. So that hatred is just the, it's growing in intensity. And then he explains it, that there is going to be these, they had these sheaves in the field. And then his sheaf was there and all the grain is bundled up and their sheaves come over and they're bowing down. They didn't like that at all, the idea of, of bowing down to him. And they made obeisance, verse 7 says, uh, they, they bow down to him. And, and what happens? Verse 8, and they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. So again, it grows. And then he has this other dream where the sun, the moon, the stars, and, and that brings in the entire family there. And, and even his father understands what is happening, what is being said, that, wait, are, are we even, your father and mother, going to bow down to you? And Jacob uh, understands that. He rebukes him, but he does say in verse 11, it says that he observed these things, or he pondered them, he understood, and he looked and said, there, there's something unique here. Something is special is happening. But look at the brother's response. They not only hated him, but they also envied him in verse 11. The reaction of envy and hatred, it's almost understandable. But when it's placed in contrast to Joseph's faithfulness and honesty, 
you can, you can almost very clearly see why God is choosing Joseph. Because of his, his integrity, his life. His, he's already at this young age of 17 demonstrating some of those characteristics. And so God is going to choose the faithful, the righteous people uh, in positions of leadership. And, in, and it may cause jealousy from others, but if you're put in those situations, there may be jealousy from others. But we have to, we have to know that that'll be there, but engage in encounter like Joseph. Well, the, the story keeps unfolding. And Jacob's brothers go away. They're going to go to Shechem to shepherd and to tend to the flocks. And Joseph's going to be sent by his, his father back to him. In verses 14 through 18, they could easily be ones that we look and gloss over. If maybe the first time you read through it, you're going to look and say, oh, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a unique coincidence how, how that all happened. But, but look what happens. Joseph is going to be sent to check up on his brothers, whether he's being sent out as a spy, you know, because he's brought back a bad report in verse 2, or because the last time the brothers were in Shechem, a whole lot of bad things happened. They were very violent. And maybe, the, maybe Jacob's concerned that his sons are now in a position where they could be in, in a bad spot. And Jacob sends Joseph there to check up on him. When he gets there, Notice he gets to verse 13, and uh, they come to, she- come to Shechem, and he's going to look for his brothers. When he gets there, he doesn't find uh, the brothers in verse 14, 15. He doesn't find the brothers, and it's like, where are they at? Well, they're in Dotham. Dotham is 14 miles away from Shechem. And Joseph doesn't know that except for this certain man just happens to show up. Think about the coincidence here, you know, big air quotes on that one. The, the, the providence of God to have this certain man who happened to hear the conversations of the brothers show up in this certain field at the time Joseph was there and says, oh, by the way, they went to Dotham. Now, does God know what's going to happen to Joseph when he gets to Dotham? He does. We, we don't know in our first reading of it, but God's well aware that when he gets there, what, is, what are the brothers going to do? In fact, what do the brothers do? If you, if you look a little bit further in the story, you get down, to, uh, down a little bit later uh, when they see him coming afar off, verse 18. They, they conspire to kill their brother. They say, let's, let's kill him. And, and their motive, verse 19, notice it's not, it's not just the favoritism. It's because of this dreamer. It's because of his dreams that have increased the hatred and the envy there. And as they, as they go through and they see this dream, dreamer coming. He's like, we're going to see what's going to become of his dreams, verse 20. And all of that, the favoritism, the exaltation of Joseph, all of that is driving them to, to want to murder him. Reuben's going to step in, uh, in verses 24 to 20 and say, let's, let's not murder him. Let's put him in and then let's rescue him. Probably, I think Reuben's motives there because Reuben's not in good favor with his father. And he's like, I can rescue him and I can get back and I can make you know, daddy really happy with me now because I did this. Judah, his brother, says eventually, ah, let's not do that. Let's, let's make some money. There's these slaves coming. Let's make some money and let's sell them into slavery. Well, all the brothers do this. And then what do they do? They take his coat, a very distinguishable coat, dip it in the blood of an animal that, it's also interesting to me, what did they do when they threw him in the pit? They just sat down to eat. It's like, this wasn't even a big, they were so <clears throat> just callous, callous, yeah. That, oh, let's just, let's just eat. And they do this. They, they sell him for 20 pieces of silver, the price of an injured or handicapped slave. And they, they send him off. 
And you, you end up with Joseph going into the hands of the Midianites and eventually down to Egypt. And verse 36, at the end of the chapter, it says that they were sold into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. And verse 36 sets up everything that's about to come into the story, the characters, the players, everything is just laying it out there. And Joseph's trials here, you know, they, they are emotional. He's now going to be abandoned by his family. He's faced it because of his father's inappropriate love, because of what God is doing in his life. And he's facing all these difficulties, his brother's hatred, his brother's jealousy. And we find him at the chapter 39 that he's in Potiphar's house. And while he's in Potiphar's house, we know that the Lord was with him. But this brings up this new situation for him, a trial that he's going to face, a testing. In fact, John, as you were looking at it, you, you studied this passage out. Yeah. Do you want to take us through that, that chapter a little bit? Yeah, uh, chapter uh, 39, a very familiar story for us. And uh, sometimes with familiarity, we can kind of gloss over and forget what we're doing. But um, as I was thinking through and studying through it, just even looking through Genesis up to this point, like Joseph doesn't have a lot of good examples to follow. He has highlights here and there, but he has a lot of um, examples that weren't faithful uh, throughout the test of time also. And uh, so when we get to verse or chapter 39, my first response is that, that this is going to be Joseph's failure. Um, he's going to be set up. He's going to be tested. Uh, he's going to be tested uh, with this temptation of Potiphar's wife. And um, you, you kind of are leaning to this aspect of Joseph's going to fail here. And, and at the same time, Joseph decides that he is going to be committed to, to following God and to following uh, what he, he believes is right. And we can learn a lot of lessons from looking at the life of Joseph in, 30, in chapter 39 here. Again, a very familiar story to us, uh, but one that is, that is extremely uh, helpful as we look at and we, we, we evaluate. Because all of us are going to face temptations. Uh, even in this, in this story, we see that Joseph faced temptations. He was a godly man, and he still fin- uh, faced temptations. We're all going to face temptations. So there's, there's an aspect to this where even though specifically in this passage, as we'll see, uh, Joseph is facing, facing a sexual temptation here, an advancement from Potiphar's wife. Um, and the lessons that we're going to look at are going to deal very specifically with, with Joseph's circumstance and situation. The lessons we can still learn and apply to any temptation that we face. So it's important for us to look at and say, what are the lessons we can see in Joseph's life of how he viewed uh, the temptation, how he handled it, and then how he responded to it also. Uh, But before we get going, Pastor, would you mind reading uh, verse 1 through verse 12 for us and uh, kind of set the the story for us? Genesis 39, if you're following along, starting with verse 1. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him with the hand, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had bought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. 
And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. Literally, the idea is he's very handsome and good appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not. Let me rephrase that. Behold, my master doesn't have any concerns about what's in his house because he hath committed all that he has to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there, there within. And she caught him by the garment and said, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. So again, a very familiar story, but the lessons we can, can glean from this story, there's, there's so much here, and we're not going to have time to go through it all. So I want to share just four main lessons that I saw um, as I was studying through this text and, and uh, reading through it. Um, the first one I already mentioned, all people are going to face temptations. They're going to face uh, different types of temptations, as, as uh, Pastor Art alluded to already. Even godly people. Uh, did you catch it how many times uh, in this passage, this very short few verses, that it was mentioned that the Lord was with Joseph, or Joseph was blessed because of, um, or the Lord blessed what Joseph was doing uh, because of Joseph? Uh, in verse 2, it says, the Lord was with Joseph and became a successful man. Uh, verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. Again, remember, this is a, uh, an unbelieving pagan master uh, and he sees Joseph. We don't know how much time has gone by um, from the beginning of you know, the story in, in chapter 37 to now, or even how much time has, has uh, evolved from verse 1 down to, um, to verse 2. But, but Potiphar looks and he sees the, the faithfulness of Joseph, the commitment of Joseph, uh, and he sees something about Joseph that stands out to him, and he, and he realizes that the Lord is with him, as verse 3 says. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. And, and Potiphar turns over all of this responsibility to Joseph. Verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. So Joseph was, was living a life that was pleasing to God, and because of it... Um, he, we, we can't look at this passage and say, well, only, only ungodly people face temptations. No, godly people face temptations. All people face temptations. But the second lesson we can learn is that temptation itself is not a sin. As we read through this passage, there's no mention here that, that Joseph sinned. Uh, and yet he was continually tempted in this passage. Uh, we, we know from elsewhere in Scripture, the, the, the most easy example to look at, Jesus himself was tempted, and we know he was without sin. Uh, so the temptation itself is, is important to remember that the temptation itself is not mm. sin. Um, and I think a lot of times, and you, you've probably dealt with people and even in your own life, thinking through it sometimes, we can get bogged down and discouraged with temptations because we feel like the temptations themselves are sin. Mm. 
But that's not the case. Our response to the temptations is what the real concern is. Mm -hmm. And when we look at Joseph's life, again, it's it's astonishing to me, however you would say that, um, that with the, the history he has, with the examples he has already, he chooses to be faithful. Um, and, and the lessons, the, the challenge from his life is a great encouragement um, and can be a great help. So temptations themselves, are, they're not sin. But our response is going to be very important. And thirdly, temptations, and we're going to put a, a bulk of our time in, t- in this third and fourth one. Um, temptations can be hard to resist. Mm. They really can. And this story is loaded with it. Um, just think through the setting a little bit here with, with me. Uh, we know from Scripture that Satan is smart, he's clever, he's ruthless. He is going to attack in areas uh, that we're vulnerable. He's going to do it in ways that are appealing to us, and he's going to try to get us to, to change our focus from God and onto our own passions, our own desires, um, as James talks about. Uh, look at all of the examples. I mean, Joseph was a prime target to tempt in this circumstance. Uh, think through it. He's a young man. Again, we don't know how much time has elapsed here, but at the beginning of our story, he's 17 years old. So whether he's in his late teens, early 20s, mid-20s, he's still a young man. Uh, he was, his accountability was gone. Uh, he was no longer in his home. He was no longer in his country. He, he no longer was surrounded with a religion uh, that was his religion, uh, a view of, of serving and following Jehovah. Um, he, all of that was ripped away. New culture, new language, all of this stuff. So the accountability was completely gone. It would have been easy to say, well, this is just the new norm. This is just the new uh, situation that I'm in, and it's not a problem. He was having success. Uh, as we already read, he was promoted to, this, to, to a position where he was overseeing everything in the house, which blows your mind, and I, and I think Pastor Tony's going to talk about that. The idea that he, he was given this responsibility... Uh, even though he was this slave, he was this foreigner, um, he still acted in such a way that Potiphar looks and says, you know what, I'm going to hand things over to you. And as we saw, the Lord blessed him. He's being successful. And many times our temptations come when we're on the spiritual higher. We're being successful. We can kind of lose focus and lose, lose perspective. Um, and Satan's smart. He's attacking Joseph during this time. Uh, we also see that they, uh, when you look at the, the cultural setting here a little bit. Um, Joseph and Potiphar's wife probably could have gotten away with, with an affair for quite a while. Uh, he's in a position where he's kind of overseeing the, the servants. Potiphar's wife is, I mean, it's Potiphar's wife. She's going to have some authority in the house. Um, it would have been easy uh, for them to probably get away with it for a while. Uh, we also see that this relationship uh, in, in the cultural context, this this would have been a, a common-ish practice uh, for the people of the day to do, the excess, successful people of the day to do. Um, so Joseph could have looked and said, well, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody else is doing it. Um, everybody else is, is involved with, with these relationships, um, looking and saying, you know what, he's a slave, and this is his master's wife that's kind of giving him a command. And he's saying, well, no. I have a higher command, a higher calling from God. Um, this relationship, most likely, we don't know, you know from the text, this is just looking and, and thinking through it, most likely would have came with some temporary benefits for Joseph, whether it's financial, whether it's the status in the house. 
I mean, he would have been in favor with Potiphar's wife. I mean, he was already successful, but that, that could have been a temptation for him to say, you know what, there's benefits if I would go through with this. Joseph was the prime target if you were looking and saying, what position is a person in for, for Satan to, te- to tempt um, and to have this temptation against him? Uh, we also see that, that this temptation would have been hard for Joseph to resist because it was continual. And, and let's just be honest, for anybody who's gone through pain or, or continual temptations, one of, our, one of the responses in the back of our mind, and, and it can get really loud, is this idea of, I just want it to end. I know when I had surgeries and I was younger and you have just that dull pain and it's just like, can it just go away? And you just want that little bit of relief. And sometimes that can happen with our temptations too. Joseph was being pursued repeatedly. We see at least three times in this passage. Verse 7, Potiphar's wife um, asked him to sleep with her. Verse 10, she spoke to him day after day. Uh, this continual aspect, she continually was, was pursuing him, but he would not sleep with her. He would not listen to her. Finally, in verse 12, she catches him. Uh, the verbiage here, the, the idea, she caught him. She was holding on. When he finally flees, uh, she has his garment in his hand. She never let go. Okay, this is something uh, Potiphar's wife was not making it easy uh, for Joseph. Uh, it was, <laughs> I mean, there's no other way around it. This, this, in, one way, in one way, she was making it easy for him. Very easy for yeah. the temptation. For to do it. Yeah. Not right. easy for him to say no. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the, in finally here, in, in verse 11 and 12, in the final temptation that's recorded in this specific se- section, um, Joseph finds himself in probably the worst-case scenario. He enters the house, and he's now all alone with Potiphar. It specifically says that none of the, the, the men of the house were there. No one else was around. This was the ideal time. He was all alone. Satan is tempting him. Potiphar's wife comes to him, grabs him, Please, you know, pleads with him, commands him, whatever it is, uh, wants to have this affair with him, and, and Joseph has to make the decision. And this is like the, 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 the summa, summation of it all, saying, you know, what is Joseph's response going to be? He's already, he's already said no several times um, through, through verse 7 and 10 there, um, but this is where it's kind of the point of no return. What is he going to do? And as we see, it has... Big consequences when he does. Before, just add one other point to it. You, yeah. You're mm-hmm. listing all these things. The one, unless you said it, and I missed it, the, another aspect of that temptation, which makes it really, really powerful, is the pleasure. Yeah. You know, this is feeding right into an appetite. Uh, right. that, that's a pleasurable appetite. For sure. You know, so it just, like you're saying, everything is so compounded here. Now, this is huge. And you know it's an appetite that, I mean, because he does eventually get married and does eventually have children. Yeah, so yeah. it's not a, he's not, he's he's not a eunuch right. or anything like that right. where he's like, ah, you know. This is something he, normal in right. his life being, like you said, middle age. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's amazing. You, you can't but look at the text and say, this, mm-hmm. this had to be hard to resist. Yep. Mm-hmm. It really had to, mm-hmm. to be very honest. Um, and yet we can look at his life and say, okay, he resists, he flees. Uh, he, he leaves his garment in her hands. He runs away. So what did he do to make him successful in resisting this temptation? Uh, what steps did he take? Um, and that's number four. It's possible to overcome temptations. Uh, really quickly, three things that we see that he did. Joseph took precautions. Uh, we saw there in verse uh, 7, he comes to her, or she comes to him, ask him to lie with her. Uh, verse 10, 
Uh, she, re- she spoke to him day after day after day, but he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or be with her. Uh, he understood the danger, and he said, you know what, I need to remove myself from this. He was taking precautions, he was planning ahead, and as we said, verse 12, he got into a situation where, where he ended up being alone, um, and he had to make the choice. So he took precautions, but Joseph also focused on the truth. Um, and I think it's, uh, when you look through it, it's like, what one thing stands out that Joseph was, was committed about that would allow him to say no to this temptation repeatedly? And I think it has to come down to the fact that he was committed and focused on the truth. When the first time that we see that, that Potiphar's wife asked him uh, is in verse 7. It says, And after the, the time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, He confronts this, this scenario with truth. He says, Behold, um, behold uh, because of my master has no concern about every, anything in the house, and he's put everything into my, into my charge. Uh, there is no one greater in the house than I, nor has he kept anything back from, uh, from me except for yourself, one, because you are his wife. Uh, he, he focused on the reality and the truth. Even if it was acceptable in the culture, even if everybody else was doing it, he understood that this was not for him. This was someone else's wife. Um, and, and, he, and he reminded himself, and he actually reminds Potiphar's wife of this also, which is remarkable to me, um, but he's focused on the truth. And then he goes on farther, and, and I think this is really where the core of it is for him, and where he really uh, finds his, his ability to be able to say no. He goes on and says, how can I do this great wickedness? And you would assume right away that he's going to say, because you know this is against my master Potiphar. But he goes beyond that. He says, because this is sin against God. When he boiled it all down, when you thought through it all, you had to come to the truth that this wasn't just sin against Potiphar. This just wasn't um, a, uh, a quick um, uh, allowing of, of the pleasure and uh, of satisfying that, that desire. But ultimately, it was sin against God. And Joseph realized that, and he was committed to the fact that he needed to be loyal to his commitments to follow God. And he was saying, you know what, I'm not going to do it. Uh, he, he focused on truth. But then also, Joseph ran when he needed to. In verse 12, again, he finally gets st- stuck in that situation. There's no way out of it for him. Um, he's alone with Potiphar. She grabs him. And he doesn't discuss it anymore. He doesn't contemplate it. Uh, at this point, he just takes off. And he runs. Uh, he doesn't sit there and debate what the consequences are. Uh, pros and cons, you know, he planned ahead and he said, no, this is a bad situation, I need to get out of it. Um, And he runs away from the dangerous situation. And when you look at Joseph's life here, even with all of the reasons he could have said yes, and we probably would have looked at his life and said, you know what, I understand why he said yes, if he would have. He's committed in saying, you know what, I need to be loyal to my commitments and and I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no repeatedly. And, uh, and I can't but look at Joseph's life, and, and especially in the chapter 39 here, and say, wow. Like, Joseph gives us such a good example. And what's probably most encouraging is, the, is what we already said there in verse 4. Uh, or maybe I didn't state it. The fourth point, it's possible to overcome temptations. It's possible. Sometimes it can be so overwhelming we can look and say it's not possible. But Joseph is one of these examples that, that God gives us 
not just to say Joseph was a super Christian, you know, a super example, and the rest of us can't. He was an ordinary person. He had ordinary uh, desires. And yet, in the most extreme circumstances, he said no. And you and I can say no also. And it, it's just a huge challenge to me when I look at the, that mm-hmm. test of, of the allurement to him and how he handled those temptations to be able to say, I, I can do it, and I can put some of the practices and lessons that I even knew learned from from Joseph's life there. It's really good. I mean, as you look at everything John is, I mean, basically just covered the whole chapter, did a great job with it. But do you guys have, as you look at applications or uh, even just thinking about temptations or the allurement, things that you've seen from the passage or you want to highlight? I have a thought here, Dad. You kind of expect when you're reading the story after he takes such a strong stand against the temptation in spite of everything, mm. you kind of expect that the follow-up is going to be that he's blessed. Yeah. Everything's going to work out for yeah. him. And in fact, things get worse. And it's interesting that when we say no to temptation, it doesn't always follow up with some great victory yeah. or some great blessing. Sometimes there's a price to pay to take a stand against temptation. That's a good point. Joseph was willing to do that. Yeah. Anyone else? I like that you pointed out the idea in, uh, in verse 9, where his final statement is, and sin against God. And I think of it as a parent. What we've always tried to take our kids back to is, it's not the fact that you mistreated your sister. It's not the fact that you disobeyed me or you disobeyed mom. Mm. It's always the fact that this is a sin. You violated God's standard. And sometimes in temptation, it's really easy to look and say, what is the, the moral boundary that I'm crossing? And it's got to be more than that. Like you said, you take it back to it. It's always about us and God. And it, it kind of, you know, it's not that you just disobeyed me, but it's that you disobeyed God through your actions toward me. Yeah. And it all goes back to that bigger thought. I mean, if it was up to obeying just his parents, they were gone. Mm-hmm. You know, he thought, his dad thought he was dead. Um, and yeah. yet he had a, a, a loyalty that was beyond that. He's got a that. standard no matter who's around. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the amazing thing. His standard is this standard no matter... You know, the circumstances. My parents not there, family. This is a, this is a God mm-hmm. standard, which um, it just strikes me as you're going through it again, just that Romans 6 passage about renewing our minds. Mm-hmm. The, the battle begins in our minds. Temptation's there, the battle's there, and his mind is renewed in the sense, like you said, it's God-focused. It's not culture-focused. It's not self-focused or self-pity. It's not circumstance-focused. It's in this moment, how will I, how will God view this? And he's just convinced sin is sin. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Circumstances yeah. don't change it. God's moral standards are God's standards no matter what. The other thing that, that adds to this is, um, I don't, and, and I know that we want to make sure that we say the God focuses first, but uh, without discounting it, he is still very concerned about his reputation before men. Yeah. Mm. Um, how can I do this great wickedness against Potiphar? And he's, he has an awareness that what he does mm. not, only, not only affects this relationship, but it affects this relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is very sensitive to this relationship. You know, somebody has trusted me. Somebody has confidence in me. Somebody um, has, you know, has given, ha- is looking up to me. Um, I think on all levels, brothers and sisters looking and saying, how does this affect others around me? Yeah. How does it, what do I yeah. do? How, do, how does that how does my spouse view that? How, how would my, this affect my kids? How would this affect my parents? Um, that is a factor that we have to keep in mind, too, is remembering not only is this a sin against God, 
but it has a rippling effect in how it, how it impacts other people. I mean, even the things we've been talking about and, you know, battling through the reopening and our testimonies and how much oh. our attitudes, our actions, our smart aleck comments, our, whether we agree with something or not, that ripple effect that it potentially has in the community by making just ridiculous statements at times. Yeah. So Well, like in Joseph's case, you highlighted that the five times they see the Lord is with him, the Lord is with him, the Lord is with him, you know, and if Joseph is so flippant, what does that do to his testimony to Potiphar? Yeah. If all of a sudden his you know, comments, if we're flippant and disrespectful, how does that affect comments, you know, our witness to other people around us? Um, you know, we, we have to be cautious, cautious and careful. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned Potiphar specifically, and you guys know where we're going when we see that potentially what... It's kind of implied, what was that long-term relationship like with Potiphar? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and we'll talk about that. But yeah, if he had responded differently here, yeah. what would have happened later when he was in prison? You know, well, why, why don't you pick like? up with that? I mean, we see, like Kim was saying, like that idea of, you know, doing the right thing doesn't end up with the best circumstances all the time. And we see that in chapter 39, verse 20. Where does Joseph end up in this situation? We all know he's going to end up in prison. But the perspective on that and some of the, how he takes the rockiest road to the top. I mean, it's not the, it's not the path I want to take to get to the top. And so as he advances in life, Pastoni, why don't you take time to just talk about the advancements of Joseph? Yeah, when you look at the life and just kind of his life as a whole is what we'll do. We'll take three different situations where he advanced to a higher position. And what does that look like for him? And what can we gain from understanding how he handled it or how God worked through him? And uh, the first situation we want to look at, just a little bit, kind of, you covered it very well. In Potiphar's house, what was that advancement like for Joseph? He comes into the land of Egypt just as a slave, right? And one of the most important people in all of Egypt purchases him to be the slave, which could have very quickly gone to Joseph's head. And we know that what did happen quickly for Joseph was the fact that he was successful. He seems to go very quickly from a nobody to a somebody, to the overseer of everybody, right? And so if anybody had a chance, like we said, to look and say, I have done something great myself, it could have been Joseph, but it wasn't. And so in Potiphar's house, I want to take time to look at his ethics. And by ethics, I don't just mean the way he conducted himself morally, but ethics being the principles that govern a person's behavior, whether whether it is his moral behavior, his spiritual behavior, even his work ethic. And so let's start there with the work ethic. And there's a few passages or a few verses to highlight. Um, Genesis 39 verse 4. It says that Joseph found grace in Potiphar's sight and he served him. And Potiphar made Joseph overseer over his house and all that he had he put into his hand. It seems that very quickly Joseph is given all the responsibilities. Which to me implies that in this position his work ethic he was a very diligent man. Coming into a new culture to learn what that might be like. The interactions, the business practices. Even to have to learn a new language. To have done it in a way that he is successful enough in that language for Potiphar to say, I trust you to be in charge of it all. You know what you're talking about. You know how all this takes place. Smart and so he had this, yeah. this really good work smart ethic. Guy. Smart. A smart guy, yeah. right? And you, just, you see that even playing out in his story later with some of the decisions towards the end that he makes. Then you look at Genesis 39 verse 6. And Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he knew not what he had, save the bread which he did eat. And it seems like Joseph is diligent enough to fulfill his responsibilities so well 
that he's given even more responsibility where Potiphar says, it's all in your hands now. Mm. And I trust you with it all. I don't even need to pay attention to it because you are taking care of everything. That's a diligent, trustworthy man in his work ethic. And it just continues to verse five now. So we looked at verse four, we looked at verse six, go back to verse five. From the time that Potiphar had made Joseph overseer, the Lord blessed Potiphar's house because of Joseph. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. His work ethic is recognized and rewarded by Potiphar and recognized and rewarded by God. And blessings just mm-hmm. extend to Joseph. And there's that ripple effect you mentioned in a different context. But if Joseph is being blessed, the people around him are being blessed, the land around him is being blessed, all because of this man is saying, I will apply myself with a good work ethic in the situation where I find myself. But then the other ethic is his moral or spiritual ethic. And that's where you spend a lot of time talking about, which was really well done, that he looks and he says, here's Mrs. Potiphar, who comes day after day. doesn't tell us how long that was. But he's been in the house for quite some time, probably. I mean, I just think back to the language idea. To have learned a language, to have been in there that long, day after day. What was that? The, from the beginning, just toward the end, just a, a middle, you know. And that whole time, he is saying to her, no, no, no. I am in a position of ability, access. I could control how this is handled amongst everybody else. And yet he says, like you pointed out in verses 8 and 9, I can't do this against Potiphar. There's that moral aspect right there, that ethic that says this is wrong against another human being. But more importantly, that spiritual where we just talked about, he says, I cannot do this against God. How can I do this great wickedness? What you're proposing and in doing that sin against God. He chose to live by God's standard. And that was in his work ethic and his spiritual ethic. So I summarize it this way, that he commits to applying himself and chooses to intentionally live for God's glory as he advanced in Potiphar's house. You know, as you, as you think about that, guys, when you, Joseph's work ethic, Joseph's spiritual ethic, from your study in Joseph, was there anything else that you saw that it would even add to, you know, Tony's perspectives there? That you, th- you know, I, I know for mine, when I was studying that first part in chapter 37, when he goes to Dotham, the 14 extra miles, one of the commentators wrote about how easy would it have been to just look and say, you know what, Dad, they're not there. Let me come back home. But when he found out, he was willing in his coat, which they talk about probably being to the ankles. You're going to walk 14 more miles in this coat because you're going to do the job that you were given. You're going to see it all the way through to completion. As yesterday when we were talking a little bit about it, that just struck me when I was reading through Joseph, the work Mm -hmm. ethic, just even permeated when he was young, his life. Yeah. You know, even, even beyond that, you were, yeah. why don't you, why don't you yeah, well, keep, yeah, keep rolling. Okay. We looked yeah. at the advancement in Potiphar's house, but now you get to this weird spot where you think, how do I advance in prison? But there is this situation where he's taken from lowly prisoner to something mm. more. And you might be familiar with the story. Joseph, uh, like we said, there's the issue with Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar, it's interesting to note, the captain of the guard takes Joseph from his house and puts him into the prison that Potiphar is kind of overseeing and the one that he's in charge of. And Joseph, very quickly again, seems to be observed by the prison keeper who says there's something different about this guy. And so as you look at how his position in the prison changed, I want to focus on his relationships through this advancement. And specifically starting with the one with the prison keeper. You read in Genesis chapter 39, in verses 22 and 23, it says this, And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. 
The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand. It seems as though the keeper notices, again, Joseph's work ethic. And not just the way that he worked, but even the ability and skill that he had. Remember, Joseph was an overseer of a very important man's house. And the keeper looks and says, in some way, this guy has ability. I see that. I recognize the ability. And so I will give to him responsibility. And there's that trust in that relationship. He, he looks and says, this guy had a job before. And you know what it says to me about Joseph? The same way he worked in the past, he continued to work in this new position. Where the keeper says, I trust this guy. I give this guy more responsibility. I am not worried about what this guy is responsible for. Because he can handle it and he knows what he's doing. And so eventually the keeper just says, you have all like unhindered access to everybody. You are in charge of everybody. And what, it, what that says about the relationship is that Joseph was able to build that trust again with that man. And he was trusted by him, but trustworthy to fulfill what he was supposed to do. Secondly, though, it's not just that the keeper had a relationship with Joseph, but even focusing on the ones that Joseph managed when he was in prison. Look at chapter 40 now. You get to verse 4. It says this, And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them. The baker and the cupbearer are now in prison. He charged Joseph with them, and he served them. They continued a season in ward. Here's what I find is interesting to note. I am, from when I look at the text, assuming that the captain of the guard mentioned in verse 4 is Potiphar again. Right? Mm-hmm. He mentions him throughout. The, the, the author mentions the captain of the guard. Why would he introduce somebody else? Probably the captain of the guard, those who were closest to Pharaoh, is who it seems like Potiphar might have been in charge of. Potiphar, in this verse, is the one that says, I want Joseph to be in charge of these two people. And so he is given the responsibility to watch these high-ranking men. And it says, do you see what it says there? And he served them. Joseph put himself out to serve someone else while they're both or all three in this wretched prison situation. Apparently, he did so even the entire time they were there for a season. And it says that Joseph served them. And I find it interesting that he is very attentive to the way that he serves them. Look at verses 6 and 7. And we'll just highlight a few of the statements there. Joseph came to them in the morning. He comes to the two men the morning after they have their dreams. And he looked upon them and behold, they were sad. And he asked them, why are you so sad today? Here's a guy in a prison who looks at somebody else and he's like, hey, why are you guys so sad today? Like, what are they supposed to say? But Joseph is diligent enough and he is attentive enough that he doesn't neglect the men. He has some kind of relationship with them that he notices even in this bad situation, it looks like there's something bothering you. He doesn't doesn't just assume. And here's what I find interesting too. He says to them what's wrong and they talk back to him. It's not that they just assume here's a relationship with a guy. Oh, he's just doing his job. No, he to them felt like he was personally investing in them enough that they said, well, we'll tell you what's wrong since you asked. So he has that relationship with the keeper, the relationship with the ones that he managed, and now his relationship with the one who allowed him to be in prison. Not Potiphar, but his relationship with God, even in prison. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 40, verse 8. It says this, We have dreamed, and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God. His first recorded comments about God when he's in prison are respectful, And they acknowledge God's sovereignty. He hasn't forgotten that God is the authority. He hasn't rejected that authority that belongs to God. And he obviously hasn't stopped trusting in God. Right? 
He has positive things to say. His attitude towards God. And then it says that he just, he says to them, God is the one who can answer. And I believe that he continued then to live by God's standard while he was in prison. This relationship that he had with God was not broken. He still saw value in it. He still said, this is how I need to act toward God. And I take that from Genesis 39 verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph when he first enters prison. And showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. God continues to bless Joseph in prison. Why would God want to bless a man who would turn his back on God? So it seems like that relationship with the keeper, it built that trust. He was attentive to those in his Mm -hmm. care. And he never turned away from God. I, I put it this way. He commits to serving others in this situation and again, chooses to intentionally live for God's glory. Yeah, and it would have been an easy opportunity for him not to, just to, woe is me, play the victim card to look and to say, you know, I'm feeling lonely, I feel betrayed, I feel, you know, abandoned, all of those, and just being able to say, I played the victim card and wrap it up. And it's interesting that what ends up happening is we know the, the after the dreams, they get out. Well, one gets out, one gets hung. Mm-hmm. But it says at the end of the chapter that, that that butler, what did he do? He did not remember Joseph, even though Joseph pleaded with him to do that. And uh, I think it's important for us to remember as, you know, we, we look here, that it's impossible for us to miss the hand of God in this. Even though Joseph felt lonely, felt dismissed, he feels forgotten, God is still in control whether it's finding the man in Shechem, whether it's letting him be into the prison, into the prison now where the butler and the baker are, and eventually going to be, as we'll see in a few moments here, exalted into Pharaoh's house. But God is in control. And anything we face, any difficulty, any virus that comes in, any uh, attacks that happen, anything that goes on in our world, any trials, difficulties we face, let's remember, let's take away. God's in control. Let's not, as you just said, don't turn our back on God and then expect God to bless us. Let's take, take the time to say, God, you're in control, and I'm going to trust the truth of your word, and I'm going to hold the truth no matter what I'm facing. I'm going to trust in your goodness, your sovereignty, your control through all of my trials, my temptations, my difficulties. We're going to trust in you. I think we need to, to remember that even in light of what we're facing today. You mentioned taking time. Folk, we need to take time, take a break right here, and we're going to come back and do the second part of this session in uh, a few minutes from now. Part two. So as we pick back up in our uh, account of Joseph, and as Pastor Tony finishes his drink of water, because he's going to speak in a second again, right. uh, we've, we've ramped up the story, getting to the point where we find Joseph battling through, going in prison with the butler, the baker, uh, no candlestick maker, but he's there. And uh, Pastor Tony, you've been talking about the the test of advancement. And as he's being advancing, as he's advancing, what is Joseph like? What makes him tick? As he's endured these trials, as he's found himself on this road to you know to the top, though he doesn't know he's getting there yet, he's always doing the right thing. And I, I like the approach that you've been taking, just his ethics and who this man was and what we learned. So can you, can you pick up you know, where you'd left off in the, the first sure. session and just sure. keep going there? Yeah, we said in Potiphar's house that Joseph commits to applying himself and still lives by God's standard. 
And then when he's in prison, he's moved to the top in prison, he commits to serving others and still lives according to God's standards, bring God glory. So we would expect that something very similar would happen when he advances in the Pharaoh's house. If you remember, Joseph interprets those dreams in prison. He is forgotten for a while by one of the men that he interpreted for. But yet Pharaoh has a dream, two dreams that just confuse him. Nobody's able to answer. It's remembered that Joseph is able to help. And so Joseph is brought. He interprets the dream. He offers a plan of how to solve the problem that they will face. And Joseph is suddenly catapulted by Pharaoh the most important person in the land, from prisoner to number two, to overseer of all the other people that would call themselves Egyptians. And so here what I want to focus on is his refusals. What does he look, and and Joseph, the decisions that he made, what does he refuse to do? I think, first of all, we need to point out that Joseph refuses to retaliate against those who mistreated him. There is no indication in the text that Joseph takes it upon himself to harm, to judge, to punish Potiphar to punish Potiphar's wife to act against the uh, the chief butler for forgetting him there's even no indication that later his interactions with his brothers he does not seek to punish them and Pastor Kim will talk more about that relationship so he refuses to retaliate against those who may have harmed him he also refuses to slow down or slack off or whatever word you want to mention after he is promoted as you read through Genesis 41 Verses 37 through 45, you can gain a sense of how much responsibility was falling upon Joseph. He lays out this large plan of here's how we handle the famine. Here's how we will distribute, but we have to do a lot before the famine hits. And there's just this this responsibility. What's expected of him? And you see a, a little bit in that section, just to point out some of what the scripture says. If Pharaoh says to him, you, Joseph, shall be over my house. And according to your words, shall all my people be ruled. Without you shall not a man lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of one project for at least 14 years. And says, I want you to commit to being the guy in charge of this project. It's going to take time. He goes from the time of plenty to the time of famine. Pharaoh also puts him in charge of everyone in Egypt. It says, without you shall not a man lift his hand or foot in the land of Egypt. You shall rule. Your word shall all my people be ruled by your word. And Joseph responds by working to collect and store the food. Look at Genesis 41 verse 48. It says this, Joseph, he gathered up all the food of the seven years and laid up food in the city and around every city. He is constantly involved in overseeing the project that is being done. And I would think that in that oversight, there had to be a lot of foresight to say, now that we have all of this, how will we store it to make it last? Where will we put it? When it comes time to distribute it, it wasn't just that he was flying by the seat of his pants, but he was thinking ahead to what is going on. That takes commitment to say, I'm going to continue to work hard over this long period of time at the job that I'm given. And then he managed the distribution of the food. It comes time later. I mean, we're talking more than seven years after he started this job. Look at Genesis 41, 55. Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. And Joseph opened all the storehouses. He sold unto the Egyptians and all countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn. He continues to do this again and again and again. 
And as times changed, Joseph was able to adapt to what was going on. He didn't say that, well, it's always worked before, but he adapted. When you look at Genesis 47 later in the, the story, you see in specific verses 13 through 26 where people are coming and saying, I can't afford to buy food anymore. And he says, you still need to buy it, so let's change the way this has been working. Give me your cattle. Well, that, you don't have that anymore? Give your land. And so he manages not just the distribution but the food to make it work for everybody. So he doesn't slow down. He refuses to say, I will back off and just... Just glide through the rest of my responsibility. But there's one other point I want you to see. Joseph refuses to take credit for someone else's accomplishments. Think back through the whole story of Joseph. The author has consistently noted God's role in every event when Joseph has advanced. In Genesis chapter 39 verse 3 in Potiphar's house, it says that Potiphar, his master, saw that the Lord was with him. In Potiphar's prison in chapter 39 verse 23 It says, the keeper looked not on anything because the Lord was with him. He didn't worry about what was going on because God was with Joseph. And then you see in Pharaoh's house, in Genesis 41, verse 39, God has showed you all of this. Pharaoh says, God is the one who has shown you the interpretation, who has shown you the plan that needs to be carried out. So the author has very well shown to us that God's hand is involved all the way. So what does Joseph do? Joseph has consistently acknowledged God's presence and God's role during these same events. You think about back with Mrs. Potiphar, right? He's saying, God is here. I can't sin against God. I can't do this against God. He's acknowledging that God is present. God is part of my life, part of the situation. Look at Genesis chapter 41, verse 52. It comes time now for Joseph. He has children. And he comes, he comes to name his sons. Look what he names his second son. Genesis 41, 52. And the name of the second son he called Ephraim which means, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Acknowledging that only God has taken the action and been able to be the one who has changed my life. In this land of affliction, of problems, where things could be horribly worse than they were before, God has made me to be fruitful. He acknowledges that, and he doesn't stop with the birth of his son. Towards the end of his story as a whole, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says to his brothers when they they have this situation where are we going to resolve this problem we've always had? He said, God meant it for good to bring about salvation for so many. Joseph has consistently acknowledged who God was. So he doesn't slow down. He doesn't take revenge. He doesn't say, you know, I'm the one who made this happen. In that position of advancement, he still gives all the credit to God. He commits his attention to his responsibility, not the wrongs, but to his responsibility for as long as he is there and still chooses to intentionally acknowledge God's role throughout that advancement. You guys, any, anybody else want to chime in on any of that? I mean, some really good stuff there. Just one thought maybe is that uh, Tony's basically saying this, that uh, there's no hint of pride. Mm-hmm. Uh, when a person really has to work hard to lift themselves up in life. The expression, you know, lift myself up by my bootstraps. In that sense, I'd be Joseph. He was the lowest of the low, and now he's the highest of the high. And yet, no hint of pride whatsoever. Uh, Again, acknowledging that it was all of God's grace that was taking place in his life. It's really interesting, as you were talking, Tone, the, uh, you use the illustration often when we're just talking in the hall or in our offices about the the center of the wheel. Hmm. Who's, who's Who's at your center? 
And you keep looking, when you're going through it today, I'm just listening and thinking, there's no way around the fact that God is at the center of Joseph's wheel. Mm -hmm. Everything permeates from God. Business ethics, work ethics, personal ethics, just relationships. It's all about how is this going to impact God and his testimony and my testimony to others in relationship to God. I just really, really good, really great study, and I appreciate that. You know, it's it's interesting you bring out about Ephraim and his how he names his son, but I like I like his other son's name too, you know, because as Joseph is going to move forward with his life, he's going to settle down. Now at this point, he's settling down. He's got a family. He's got a work project that you know he's going to do the same thing. He's going to go to the factory every day basically and be doing the same thing. And in chapter forty-one, verse fifty-one, he names his first son. He names him Manasseh. And, and I love what it says. It says, For God hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. It's not that he forgot. He still knew his brothers. He still knew about the situation. But he was able to start moving forward in life. And now Joseph, you take that narrative, you take the story. He's moving forward now. He's like, all right, the past is behind. I'm not going to dwell there. I'm going to go forward. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to live my life with my family. And I'm going to make the most of this new situation that I'm in. But then the next couple verses, the famine hits. And everything goes, goes south. Not only in Egypt, but we know that it spreads to Canaan. And Jacob and his family are going to feel the effects of it. And you get to chapter 42. And it's, it's going to build us to almost the, the potential climax of this story where it says, and when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, verse, chapter 42, verse 1, Jacob says to his sons, don't, don't stay here. I want you to go to Egypt in the next couple of verses. And that's going to set up the, the story we all sort of like to hear and we like. And Pastor Kim, why don't you take us through that? And looking at the Joseph and his forgiveness and his battles there, why don't you go ahead yeah, with that? So, uh, like you said, maybe Joseph didn't expect this to happen, or at least not this particular time, but he's right. now confronted with his brothers who had uh, been responsible for him being in Egypt in the first place. And we see this part of Joseph's life where he needs to work through this idea of forgiveness. Not that it's a new idea now, but it's going to mm-hmm. work play itself out very clearly. And I'd like to look at this in three different steps. First of all, to fully appreciate Joseph's ability to forgive those who had hurt him. I think we first need to examine and appreciate just how real and significant the hurt was that he experienced. Mm. And so if we can appreciate the depth of hurt that he experienced, which can be measured uh, in a number of different ways, we see, first of all, this hurt was caused by close family members. And it's certainly true that our feelings of hurt increase when the pain is caused by someone that we expect would care for us. Mm-hmm. So that it was caused by close family members. It was continual. As we read through the text, numerous phrases that show that this was ongoing hurt. In chapter 37, we looked at this earlier, uh, his brothers hated him. A little bit further on, the same chapter, verse 8, they hated him yet the more. Uh, I think Art had read the passage where in chapter 37, verse 11, they were jealous of him. They even conspired against him to slay him. So this was an ongoing repeated hurt that he was experiencing. And the hurt was unjustified. Uh, Joseph did nothing wrong throughout the story. Not that he couldn't have handled maybe some situations a little Mm -hmm. differently, but ultimately 
this hurt was no fault of his own. And the hurt took several different forms. It's interesting, I saw online that uh, today we actually categorize the different types of abuse that a person can experience. As I looked at the list of uh, categories of abuse, Joseph could have really checked off pretty much every category <laughs> on the list. So there was domestic abuse within yeah. his own family, discriminatory abuse, <laughs> that is, he had a different mother than his brothers, which was a whole part of the story, emotional abuse, hated by his brothers. The text even says they could not speak politely to yeah. him or in friendly terms with him. Uh, there was the um, abuse of neglect. The one text has the idea that he couldn't, they couldn't even speak a kind word to him. Financial abuse. He lost everything. Hmm. Literally, the clothes on his back. <laughs> um, there was physical abuse as he was thrown into a pit with no water and even at one point was, could have been killed by his brothers. And one of the other categories I noticed in the list that they give today is that of modern slavery. I thought, well, Joseph, it wasn't modern slavery. It was the good old-fashioned slavery that he experienced. So, and on top of all that, this hurt that he'd experienced, this very real deep hurt, was allowed to fester over 13 years. So from when he was 17 years old to the time he was 30, and he was lifted up in Pharaoh's house, uh, all of the things that had happened to him, he could have been focusing on that, allowing it just to fester in his heart. And for many of us, maybe that's what have been the case. Um, as he was toiling as a slave, as he was wasting away in prison. And so for most people, all that hurt, compounded over time, would have resulted in bitterness and anger and a desire for revenge. Wasn't the case of Joseph. In fact, it's interesting, even his brothers expected that. At the end of the book, hmm. chapter 50, verse 15, the text says, hmm. when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will hate us, and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. Yeah. Wow. So even his brothers fully expected there to be some revenge here on his part. And so that understanding of the depth of his hurt allows us to better appreciate the degree of his forgiveness. And so looking now at the second step, the forgiveness that he showed, when it was in his means to exact revenge, and in fact his brothers we're even making revenge an easy option where they played into this whole thing. He chose to absolutely not go down that road. Um, now, although he didn't seek revenge, and while it's clear that he chose to forgive his brothers, his trust in them still needed to be earned. And so that's why he develops these different tests that he kind of puts them through as he's seeking to know their heart and to regain their trust. And even when he did reveal himself to his brothers, and so in a sense he kind of openly confronted them, he didn't pretend like nothing had happened. The text says in chapter 45, verse 4, he says, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. And so he doesn't gloss over the reality of what took place, but again, he's allowing them the opportunity to regain his trust. And so although many would have been bitter, throughout this whole story, Joseph showed remarkable kindness to his brothers. He restored their money after they had bought the grain. He invited them to dine with him. Uh, he kissed his brothers and wept over them several times. In fact, the text talks about him weeping. He nourished them during the last five years of famine. I mean, he, he truly wanted them to be reassured that he had forgiven them. The text even says that he comforted them and spoke to their hearts. 
So in spite of everything that he suffered because of those very men, Joseph chose to forgive and to love his brothers. And then finally, we get to the end of the story in chapter 50. His brothers specifically asked him to forgive them. The text says in chapter 50, verse 16, and now we pray thee, forgive our trespass. And the text goes on to say, and Joseph wept and said unto them, fear not. Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. And Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly unto them. And so Joseph's forgiveness was very real and very evident. There's this third step to, should I go in with it right away? Or everybody would say yeah. comment on that first part. But the, the real question, I think, that comes out of all this, at least strikes me, is how? How was Joseph able to forget? I mean, mm-hmm. such deep hurt. Um, how did he work through all that? And there are several principles that we need to take away from the story. First of all, he focused on God's sovereignty, and Tony and some other uh, John were pointing that out, but he, he definitely was focused on God's sovereignty. In chapter 45, verse 7, Joseph says this to his brothers. He says, God sent me before you to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me here, but God. Hmm. Well, what a, what a powerful statement. I mean, completely different perspective, perspective. than what most people would have had on this story. But Joseph knew and believed that God is in control, that God knows what he is doing in spite of the changing and often difficult circumstances that we face. So he focused on God's sovereignty. He trusted in God's promises. It was brought out earlier about how he recognized that God was working through these dreams. And when he meets his brothers and they bow down before him, they don't know who he is yet, but they bow down before him. The text says that in chapter 42, uh, verse 9, says, Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed of them. And this is key because Joseph hung on to those promises that God had shown him as a young man mm. through those dreams, those visions he had. And that's key because knowing and believing that God is faithful to his word is what enables us to be faithful and to order our lives according to his precepts. Art just pointed out very, very astutely that uh, Joseph chose to not focus on the past. And it's very clear by the name he gave to his one son, mm-hmm. Manasseh, which means God made me forget. But Joseph makes a statement in chapter 41, mm-hmm. verse 51. He says, God hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. He chose to not focus right. on the past, mm-hmm. to relive those hurts uh, that he had experienced. And also, he understood that as bad as his situation was at times, he was in a much better place than his offenders. Because, although he was in prison, his conscience was free and clear before God. While his brothers lived Mm -hmm. perpetually in a prison of guilt. Mm -hmm. It's really striking Mm -hmm. that in chapter 42, verse 21, the text says that the brothers say among themselves, we are verily guilty concerning our brother. Now, the, the thing, that, the kicker here is that this is 22 years later. <laughs> and 22 years have gone by, and they're still troubled yeah. deeply by this sense of guilt. They're tormented by their guilt. And so they were in their own prison of guilt all that time. But Joseph wanted for them their well-being. 
And we see that when they finally moved on to Egypt. The Bible says he moved them into the land of Goshen, which was the best mm -hmm. of the land. He wanted their well-being, and he wanted their growth. One of the reasons for those tests he was putting them through was he was um, seeking to help them to work through, to confess, to repent <laughs> of their sin. And then finally, um, Joseph believed the truth that all things work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. In chapter 50, verse 20, Tony alluded to it earlier, but it's worth reading. It's the, it is the apex of the story. Yeah, yeah. Chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says, As for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Yeah. So again, the, the reality of Joseph's forgiveness is evident throughout the story, and he provides us with a beautiful and powerful example of what true forgiveness looks like. Hmm. He lived out the principle that we are given as believers. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Yeah, so uh, it's really challenging to work through that idea of forgiving. And as, as you men have worked through that, or even in this passage or any of these passages, any thoughts on you know, helping others through forgiveness or forbearance or just any more insights that you have from, the, from this section of text? I really, I really like the, the perspective dynamic. Oh. Hmm. And even going through the trials may not be in relationship to forgiveness, but uh, I don't know if you're, do you remember ever hearing about Thomas Edison when his plant in New Jersey burned down? The, uh, they had a situation where his, his plant had burned down. Somebody it was in December and they were screaming out fire, fire. And uh, Charles Edison, his son, actually recounts the situation and talks, says he was running around. He was, he was frantic. His dad was about 67 years old and didn't know where dad was. And all of a sudden he sees dad running across the, the way and screaming to his son, where's your mom? Where's your mom? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, go get your mom and get all her friends because we're never going to see a fire like this again. <laughs> and, and he just had that perspective. And he, he later on said, um, I have it written down here. He said, you know what? We can always make capital out of disaster. We've just cleared a bunch of old rubbish. We'll build bigger. We'll build better on these ruins. And then he rolled up his coat, it said, and the account says he rolled up his coat, put it as a pillow, and he went to sleep because he said, this is, we, we can go forward from here. We can move on. Mm. And dealing with the hurts internally or that perspective is just, is huge. Anyone else? Any other? I think even more than the internally, thinking through, and I was reading a couple different verses, there was actually like the physical act of forgiving where he comes and he falls on his brothers. He hugs them. He weeps. You read that he gives this to them. He continues to give them things to provide for them. Sometimes I think we... You, you know, it's easy to focus on the emotional or the psychological act of forgiveness, but the physical step of taking an action that is concrete to say, this is my form. This is a way I'm showing you, I'm forgiving you. I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm interested to look at that a little bit more about Joseph, what that looked like for him. It's a Romans 12, mm -hmm. a Romans 12 of, uh, application of it. Um, I, I put down several, you know, simple phrases to help me to remember these types of things, which summarizes is stop the reruns, mm -hmm. um, you know, stay in God's word, 
if you're hurt by somebody, seek the blessings that are around you. Um, looking at you know how God has has blessed. Um, but that aspect is speak kindly towards those who've offended you, which he's that whole interview with his brothers. Seek doing good. Remember that mm-hmm. idea of heaping coals of fire upon their head. That practical as- aspect isn't just from our heart, but it has to be shown in a way. Otherwise, we won't get over forget the, you know, we won't get over our own past. You know, we have to do. And, pro- mm-hmm. and the idea is just give a gift towards those who have offended you. And man, mm-hmm. his his characteristic of serving his brothers after they offended, um, tremendous. Tremendous aspect. I even think, Tony, you were talking yesterday when we were talking through some of this, uh, the, how Joseph even helps his brothers. Like, there are shepherds coming in, and he's like, wait, let me tell you how to go to fair, how to approach. He could have easily just said, all right, let me just let you go in. And, but he knew it as shepherds, and he knew, he's like, hey, let me, let me help you out. So even in the kindnesses, he showed yeah. that. It's, it's interesting then, too, how you see that spills out to Pharaoh itself. Uh, himself um, in chapter 45 verse 16 it says you know it's the story where joseph forgives them it says and the fame thereof was heard in pharaoh's house saying joseph's brethren are come hmm. and it pleased pharaoh well and his servants and pharaoh then is like hey get get your brothers get them here you know and then you flip over to uh to chapter 47 verse 6 and Pharaoh says, the land of Egypt is before you, and the best of the land make your father and brothers dwell in the land of Goshen, let them dwell. And if you know any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. Yeah. And he's like, man, if this is their experience, if they're anything like you, which speaks to Joseph's character and that ripple of how now, I don't know your brothers, but if they're like you, man, they're going to do a really good job. Isn't that, it just, it and we know And we know they're not like him, but his <laughs> exactly. testimony was so right? great that, yep. it, that it did have that potential impact. Mm-hmm. It struck me today as uh, Pastor Fox was going over it, um, Jesus, or Joseph doesn't belittle his brothers when they confess. Mm. Like, after all that time, like, he doesn't like, ha ha, told you so, or yeah, you're, you know, you finally, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you finally realize what you did. Yeah. Yep. He doesn't do it at all. He actually seeks to meet their needs. And yeah, the only one that does it, I told you so, is Reuben. Reuben, right? Like, yeah. hey, we're in this situation. I, I told you guys I we, told should, you we should. I told you that. Yeah. <laughs> right? And I love that. I love that scene. Just, it would have been so fun because Joseph's there, and he actually can understand everything they're saying, but they have no mm-hmm. clue. I just, yeah. that's fun. I think it's fun. But, I mean, so you get to this point in the story, and it's like, okay, everything's great. Everything seems to have been resolved. They must live happily ever after. And sometimes I think it's easy for us to, okay, we get through it, we've endured the trial, and now everything's going to be great again. But there's still potential difficulties. Or even uh, in Joseph's life, as he starts to age, he, uh, he's going to face maybe some different perspectives, different things in life. And, Pastor, as you, as you wrap up the, the story of Joseph and Joseph's life, with him aging. What, what were some insights or thoughts? Okay, folk, I got to sign the test of aging. I have no idea why I'm the one that gets that other than... Well, it's either I mean, me or I you. Like, <laughs> I have like three wise crack comments, and I'm like, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, no, I'm not. Okay. It's too late now. Okay. But from our elder statesman on aging... <laughs> We were in that chapter 45, and some of the things the men were just mentioning, it's interesting, and I'm going to get to chapter 50, but just to walk through it just a bit. Chapter 45 is loaded with uh, uh, 
Joseph's getting his family down into Egypt and Pharaoh, as was mentioned, Pharaoh strongly encourages it. He wants them to come down. There is an abundance of gifts that are sent. So it says in the chapter that Joseph sends wagons down. With the wagons, he also gives his brothers uh, multiple clothes, which is a sign of favor towards Mm -hmm. them, changes of outfit. Plus he gives them money. Those are highlighted. There are a couple things that strike me that are very interesting because you said about how he doesn't belittle his brothers in, um, in, in the sense before Pharaoh. But there's a phrase he uses in chapter 45 that I found interesting where he makes a comment to his brothers, you know, when you said his Joseph and his brothers are not alike. That's true. And Joseph still knows the character of his brothers. Look at verse 24. So he sent his brothers away. They departed. And he said unto them, See that you fall not out by the way. Literally, it's the idea, don't go arguing amongst themselves. Part of that, listening in on the conversation, he's seen that they still have a lot of angst and, and conflict within themselves, the prison. Um, of conflict. It's still there. There's, um, there's another part of that chapter that just kind of strikes me. Very, very... I would, you said you'd like to be at the scene yeah. when the Reuben and them are talking and Joseph's off the side. I would like to be at this scene, just out of curiosity, because my evil heart wants to see uh, how did the brothers approach Dad in verse 26 mm. when they show up and they say, they told him, they come to their father from Egypt, Joseph is yet alive. He is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted. He believed. How do they explain Joseph's reappearance compared to what they had said years before? And it's been years. It's been over two decades that they've hung on to the story that, you know, Joseph, you know, the animal didn't really eat him. He got away. You know, yeah. Did they tell the full account? Mm. Uh, right. We're never told exactly what, what they say. But we do know dad is so... Dad doesn't believe him. He, it's, right. He's elderly. He's faint-hearted. He thinks he's going to die, um, as he says, in the, as we'll see in the next couple of verses. But uh, he doesn't believe him until he sees all that Pharaoh has sent and Joseph has sent. So all the goods and the prosperity indicates to him this has got to be true. The chapter 46 is their move into Egypt. And um, the story is very important theologically because Jacob stops at Beersheba. He gets direction. Lord, do I, should I go down? And God tells him, absolutely mm-hmm. go down, but I will bring you back out. Right. It's an important aspect that's going to be brought up later on that I will surely bring you back out of the land. Um, the comments that are also made is, Joseph shall close your eyes. You will make it down there. You will be reunited. He's going to be there when, you're, when you are on your deathbed. Chapter 47 goes on. Uh, and, and the other thing that's important out of 46 is the idea that they give you the numbers. Uh, they want us to understand there's 70 in the clan, mm-hmm. including Joseph and his children and wife. That makes the 70. That's important right. because then they become the millions yeah. by the opening yep. up of Exodus. Um, chapter 47, he's providing for them and it's abundance and it's, it's going to play into the whole story at the end. Verse 12 and 13, Joseph nourished his father, his brethren, his father's household with bread according to their families. There's no bread in all the land. The famine great, but his family is living, as was mentioned, in the best of the land. They're living 
the proverbial high on the hog, uh, and they're they're doing well. There's the blessings in in uh, mm-hmm. forty eight forty nine. Dad's mm-hmm. Jacob's giving blessings. Please keep note. Seventeen years more go by. Um, they are living in the land. Jacob and Joseph are reunited. They have seventeen years together before we get to chapter fifty. And in that period, actually 48 and 49 with the blessings. And then we come to chapter 50, and it is basically, you break the chapter down into simplicity, the grief over Joseph's uh, father, you have the guilt of Joseph's brothers, and you have the grace of Joseph. In chapter 50 we come now, 17 years have passed, Joseph is in his mid-50s, um, at this point, his father uh, is going to pass away in the beginning of the chapter, and we see a little bit about Joseph's family in his middle age and his last 54 years of his life. That's what chapter 54, our chapter 50 covers, is a half of his life, um, where he is very focused on two things. One is family, the other is his faith in his senior years. He comes to a point where it's very clear in the text, he's very close to his dad. His dad dies, he weeps over his father. Um, He declares that they are to embalm, verse 2, his father, the physicians embalm. They have 40 days of of, um, uh, mourning. Uh, Mm -hmm. Then they extend that another 70 days. That is just shy of what Pharaoh is talked about being grieved in the land. So his dad is given great honor, great esteem. Um, this is what strikes me as, a, and maybe I'm exaggerating something here. He had promised his dad, his dad, when he has his final blessings, asks him to uh, make sure his bones are buried back up in Canaan with uh, with his grandparents, his parents, and uh, as well, Leah, his, one of his wives. And so at that time that he's passing away, Joseph says, I'll make sure. Uh, do you remember just previous, mm-hmm. Joseph did not go and collect his dad. He didn't get time off. But mm-hmm. now he asked time off to go to bury mm-hmm. his father. And it's going to be an extended period. There's great mourning. The chapter, beginning of chapter 50, read through um, the verses. It is a caravan that is... Mm-hmm. Very impressive. There's all kinds of not only family but uh, also Egyptians and the Canaanites talk about the mourning and they call this the mourning of the Egyptians. And so he he goes and uh, cares for his his father in his latter years. He cares for his father at his uh, the disposal of his remains. And then we have in the middle of the chapter 50, they return to Egypt. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But he has his confrontation with his brothers one more time, as Pastor Kim alluded to. And then the end of the chapter, between verses 21 and 22, you may want to put there, we're talking another 50-plus years that occur between those two verses. But what we get basically is Joseph and some comments about his offspring. It tells us in verse 22, he dwells in Egypt with his household. He lives to 110. He sees his great-grandchildren, Ephraim's children. Talks about uh, the Manasseh's grandchildren are put on Joseph's knee. According to the book of Job, if we understand culture right, that is an eye, that is an... Um, a display of respect when you put the child on this person's knees as if they belong to that as the parent or the grandparent or the mm-hmm. great-grandparent in this case, that they are symbolizing 
great respect and a tie between the individuals in that regard. Um, the story then really focuses and wraps up with his faith, which is absolutely consistent with the author. Joseph's got a closeness to his family in his senior years, but his faith stands out. He is consistent all the way through from 17 all the way to 110 years old. His faith is critical. He shows himself to be a man of great grace. Mm acting out his faith, his graciousness, and that's what it was already referred to. We're verse 15. When his brothers saw that dad was dead, Joseph will now not hold back. He will seek revenge upon us. And so they send a messenger to Joseph. They don't talk mm-hmm. to Joseph face to face. The, the, the um, fear of the brothers, the the mistrust, the implications here. They send a messenger and they said, your father Mm -hmm. did command before he died saying, by the way, we have no record of this happening. So whether they're exaggerating, whether dad said it, we don't know. But your dad said that before he died, that we are to tell you, Joseph, forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren, their sin, for they did uh, did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy servants, of the God of thy father. He weeps. Why does he weep? Why does he weep at that moment mm-hmm. when he gets this message from his brothers? Any, any ideas? Well, even as you're reading it, I, I start to wonder, is he... Like, I've already told you how many times I've forgiven you. Do you not believe? I've showed you all of this stuff. I've done all many, this for you. How many years have? We, we've got 17 years since he first said, I forgive you. Yeah. And in those 17 years, has he given them any reason, reason. whatsoever mm-hmm. to doubt his forgiveness, his grace? Mm-hmm. 17 years worth of living before them a Christianity, if we can use that term, and they still suspect you. I wonder if any of you people have that. Mm. Family and mm. friends, that they still make innuendos. They still make you know, some type of an accusation about how you're going to be inconsistent. But they see it. And so he weeps mm. uh, in, a, in a fashion. Uh, again, it just makes sense if we understand it from that concept. And his brother, his his brethren, also they went. They fell before him. They come to him, and he's he just reassures them twice. He says, "Stop! You know, don't fear, don't fear." In verse nineteen and twenty-one as well, don't fear. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to seek revenge. And he says it the second time. It was already mentioned before. As for you, verse 20, what you thought evil against right. me, and again, he doesn't excuse. He he calls sin sin. All the way through his life. Uh, and he says, what you did was wrong, but God meant it unto good and to bring the past. There is, again, that whole idea that he has that God focus. There is no bitterness. Uh, that, as an elderly person, middle-aged person, let's... let's <laughs> okay. Yeah. Middle-aged person. <laughs> he is not bitter over the dysfunctional family situation. Mm, right. He. He's not bitter that they still don't fully trust him. He's not upset he, that they have spoken aspersions against him. Um, the man is gracious. Just the, 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 way, the way he ends up, verse 21 is just, mm-hmm. just classic. Don't fear, I will continue to nourish you and your little ones. And remember in ancient days, 
if you didn't take revenge on somebody else personally, mm-hmm. you could also take revenge upon family, their offspring. Mm-hmm. And that would be just as effective. And then the next phrase, he comforted them and he spoke kindly. He continues to speak gracious words. It is one thing to forgive somebody. It's another how you speak about them and speak to, you know, speak afterwards. And so the man is just, he's gracious. I see that not only in his, in his latter part of his life is he gracious, he is an encourager. Notice the next verses. He dwells and talks about how he speaks to other people. I want to jump down verse 24, and he does it again in verse 25. It says, he said to his brothers, okay, as he is passing away, God will surely visit you, bring you out of the land uh, that he swore. Again, he says, it takes an oath of the children of Israel to a larger group. God will visit you. He is, and I'll, I'll get to the text uh, where, it's, where he gets this from, but he is encouraging. He is saying, God hasn't forsaken you. God will keep his word. His last words seem to be, God is going to keep his word. You follow the Lord. You do what's right. He's a man of great humility. Again, speaking as was already pointed out in all this study, his humility that it's always God. It's always God. But the striking, striking besides his forgiveness uh, a factor, his grace, is his faith. It is so striking that this is where Hebrews yeah. makes yeah. comment about him in verse 22, that it says, By faith, Joseph made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Right. That's verse 24 and, and uh, verse 25, that as he talks to his family, he makes it clear, God will surely revisit you. God will hmm. surely come. Where does he get that from? We have to go all the way back to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, the promise that was made to his ancestor hundreds of years before this, with the comment made to Abraham where God is promising the land, and God says to him in Genesis 15, verse 13, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. They shall afflict them four hundred years. Also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. Hmm. Here he is, Joseph, having that promise that was given to great-granddad, said to his father, and his father again in route at Beersheba is told the same thing, He is now decades later saying that same promise, God will bring us out of the land. God will bring us out of the land. Hey, uh, that's amazing. He's hanging on to God's word after many years go by in his own life. It's amazing. He's hanging on to the promise, even though the circumstances don't fit. What I mean by that is this. At the moment that he is saying this, they are living in luxury. (laughs) Why would they want to leave? Right. Because the promise was you're going to end up serving. But at this moment, all he sees is they got the best of the land. They are given a noble burial, his dad. And, um, and this is just not the norm. God's promise of you maintaining distinction for hundreds of years, that is not historically normal. Historically normal is people assimilate into cultures. After a generation or two, they become... Like. That culture. And Joseph is hanging on to the promises of God that you're going to leave this land. And he makes the statement. He says, you're going to believe. I know you're going to leave. Verse 25, you shall carry my bones from hence. Yeah. 
don't, I'm, I don't want to be buried here. Take me home. Take me home to that spot. And so you have, as you wrap up his story, this man is growing old gracefully. Hmm. That, that, that is just tremendous. It is, he's filled with grace. That is something worth us who, as we approach our, our senior years, we should be praying for grace as we get older. Uh, we've seen enough people become cantankerous and bitter. We know enough people that struggle with their background. Grace living as we grow older is, is just a, what a blessing to be in your senior years and not to be a bitter person. Bitter towards family, bitter towards what God has allowed in your life. Um, yeah, and Joseph had plenty of difficulties. A lot, a, lot of, a lot of people can turn and say, my family wasn't everything I wanted it to be, but, they have, but the trials weren't everything. I didn't, I didn't experience everything. I wish I had experienced, but not being bitter. Not being bitter. Um, as a wrap-up, I just think to face death by being right with God is the best way to enter into eternity. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he this was, is the man. He was right with God and right with and, men. Yep, yeah, and with men, right. right. Yeah. The, uh, anybody else have anything? Any of us young guys have anything we want to chime in on growing old? No. Did you look at me when you said you young guys? <laughs> I think no, you looked past no, I, was, I was looking toward John. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, as, as we wrap up, and I'm going to ask you guys if you could like give a, a summation. But there's a there's a poem. I don't normally like to read poems, but this one just really hit me. It was out of a book by Chuck Swindoll and Joseph, and it it talked about Joseph again not being the diary of every event, but basically these were the the portraits taken out of Joseph's life that characterized this man. And the the poem says, "What pictures will my son remember when he comes to the plain granite marker over his father's grave?" What will my daughters remember or my wife? I am resolved to give fewer lectures, to send fewer platitudes rolling their way, to give less criticism, to offer fewer opinions. From now on, I'll give them pictures they can live by, pictures that can comfort them, encourage them, keep them warm in my absence. Because when I'm gone, there will only be silence and memories of all I could give to make their lives fuller, a little richer, a little more prepared for their journey ahead of, time, ahead of them. Nothing compares to the gift of remembrance. Pictures that show they are special and that they are loved. Pictures that will be there when I am not. Pictures that have within them a redemption all their own. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, okay, what, what pictures of my life? If you were going to take five or six out of Art's life to this point, what would they demonstrate? But let's do that with Joseph. As we wrap up and we think about Joseph's life, do you have a, a perspective or a summary, a summary thought or something you take away and like, this is a vivid picture or statement from Joseph's life that uh, I have? John, do you have one? Um, I think even just, again, listening to it today, uh, Joseph didn't view his circumstances through rose-colored glasses, but he, he viewed it as reality and... He didn't try to, to change all of that, but really what he did is Joseph was loyal to his commitments, mm-hmm. and that affected the way he thought, that affected the way he acted. Um, he, he didn't just dismiss it all, but he said, okay, this is where I am, but I'm going to be loyal to the commitments and, and the actions that I take. That's a great caption on that picture, loyal to the commitments. Kim? 
One thing that strikes me is there's no indication in the text that Joseph ever questioned what God was doing or how mm. he was doing it. That is, Joseph certainly would not have chosen the path that, he, that God laid out for him, but he never questioned that God was in it. And so Joseph uh, never forgot who he was. He was a child of God, and he just trusted God implicitly through everything. Mm. And it's just very striking. Tone? Yeah, I... Yeah, I, he chose to thrive. I mean, when he found himself in a, a working position, I will thrive and do my best. And in doing my physical best, spiritually, I will, I will put myself as much as I can into. So, I mean, that's, that's us. We're made to thrive. And so I think we should in the positions we find ourselves and especially in the way that we act about mm. and toward God in those situations. Yeah. Pastor? I would if, and I use Joseph frequently in counseling, you can overcome your family history. Mm-hmm. You can overcome your family history. You cannot stop and say, I can't help it because you choose how you're going to live. And no matter what your background, you can live for the Lord. I often thought, for me, it's okay to be a pawn for God's plans. Joseph said, this is what you meant it for, but God used all of this in my life to bring about the salvation of his people. And he's, he's okay with that because he understood that God is sovereign in the affairs of mankind and that we have to, we have to rest in that. So it's okay to be a pawn in God's plan because he's sovereign and he's in control of our affairs. And so as we uh, wrap up, let's wrap up in prayer. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll, we'll finish out here. Mm. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to look at the life of Joseph and that we would take the truths, the little pictures, the snippets, we have from this great man of God. And Lord, help us to be men, women, Christians of integrity. Lord, help us to understand that our attitudes and our actions have a ripple effect. They do impact the testimony of you, the testimony of ourselves, of our church. And God, help us to live in light of your great grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for grace. Thank you for your love. In your name we pray. Amen.